This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you, as the parent, can follow their ride on a live tracking map. Yeah, when your teen requests a trip, they're matched with highly rated, experienced drivers and you receive real-time notifications. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week, I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today, they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. It makes them feel safe, and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. And today, you can get 40% off. That's up to $15 off three Uber teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you so much for tuning in. Shout out to our super producers, Casey Pegram, our producers, Andrew Howard and Max Williams, and a very special shout out to my ride or die, the one and only Noel Brown. Noel, you're back. It's me. Was I gone? You were gone. Yeah, you went on adventures, remember? Oh, that's right. And who, who, who replaced me whilst I was away? We had Matt Frederick come in to talk about the surprisingly weird history of Europeans being obsessed with pointy shoes. The Quister showed him. up. Okay. Oh, what? Other than that, it was it was a great time. The Quister showed up? He did at the very And Matt thought I was joking when I kept saying, stop saying his name. Did, 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 did you guys win? We did. We did. Matt carried the day. Oh, my God. That's so... Okay, I was worried there for a second. Not that I doubted you for a second, but it's like, you know, we gosh, a lot, a quiz, right. this, this is my first uh, absentee Quister appearance. We got a lot riding on the ongoing Quister competition, folks. So, yeah, I think Matt made us proud. Uh, he sent his regards as though we don't already hang out four times a week. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And then I guess you had, uh, what did you have, Eves? Yes, Eves, Jeffco. Now, that's on an episode that's going to come out later this week. You know, we're big fans of Eves and her work. We also are going to have her this Thursday 
as you're hearing this, we're going to have her join us uh, for a deep dive into the strange and troubling history of turpentine. No spoilers. Got it. Okay. Okay. Well, but what are we talking about today, Ben? I'm Ooh. kidding. I, I know what we're talking about. <laughs> we're talking about a race from New York to Paris that took place in 1908 and was apparently quite perilous. Yes. Yes. And some people will end up Parisless. Oh, that's terrible because they they weren't <laughs> able to make it. Yeah, this is this is something that I've always been fascinated by. We covered it years ago on car stuff. The idea of the thing is quite ambitious, if not audacious. You might have noticed, astute listeners, that Noel just said New York to Paris, and you're thinking, "Hey, I have a passing knowledge of geography." There are some oceans in the way. <laughs> yep. I was thinking the same thing. And my my knowledge of geography is, is barely passing. Same, dude. So the New York to Paris auto race was sponsored by the New York Times and French paper Le Martin. The prize was a, the prize is weird, man. What you get if you win the race is a 1,400 pound trophy and the satisfaction that you have proven it can be done. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's not like that's sort of like getting a homework assignment as a prize. You got to build a special cabinet for that thing, right? Or does it live somewhere else? Does it live in some sort of hall of fame? I don't know how trophies work. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess it's uh, it's powerful as a symbol. But that's a really good point you make. Where do you put a fourteen hundred <laughs> pound trophy? Uh, so, <laughs> I mean, we have okay houses, but we don't have houses prepped for fourteen hundred pound trophies. But anyway, this this race is actually coming in the wake of another race that happened the year before. In 1907, what was called the Peking to Paris auto race was the first of its kind. Because we have to remember, automotive technology is still relatively new. So this is almost like drone racing was a few years ago, but this is across continents. Totally. And let's not forget, I mean, you know, auto racing has come a long way. Today, NASCAR is, you know, billions and billions of dollars worth of industry. But a car racing, though, in general, has a really interesting history because so much of it was done before, like, the safeguards were really in place or the technology was even really up to speed, uh, pun totally intended, <laughs> uh, in terms of like, you know, ensuring people's safety. We had like, what is it, the Le Mans race mm -hmm. where people were literally getting hit by, you know, exploding car shrapnel on the sidelines. Yeah, 24 hours of Le Mans, an endurance race that continues in the modern day, although like many things, it was postponed recently due to the pandemic. So that first test, that first race, 1907, it really was kind of a proof of concept. And the purpose of the 1908 race was at least in part a PR move. They wanted to persuade people that cars were reliable, that they weren't just fragile new gadgets. Right. They were rugged and they could, you know, go on adventures. Um, so that's exactly right, Ben. It was essentially a, a very elaborate and arduous PR stunt. Since cars were so new, the infrastructure for roadways and interstates and the like were not really in place yet. And this would kind of hopefully serve as a means of convincing the powers that be that this this was here to stay. This 
newfangled automobile. And we'll, as we'll learn in today's episode, these folks were not driving on the kind of roads you would drive on in the modern day. They definitely went through some stuff. So the, yeah, you're right. This is PR. This is trying to st- stimulate interest and investment in cars and everything that cars need to go. The New York to Paris auto race was supposed to be the greatest of the great races. And our our kickoff starts on February 12th, morning of February 12th, 1908, in Times Square, New York City. There's 17 people in total. This includes drivers, mechanics, and journalists. And they all kind of clown car themselves into six cars from four different countries. Three of them are from France. One each is from Germany, Italy, and the United States. And these car manufacturers or models don't feel like most of these have stood the test of time, Ben. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I have not heard of a Dedion Bouton or a Motoblock or a Césaire Nodin or a Zust from Italy. I love that. The great name for a car. Or a Protos. I, I am not. Uh, the Thomas Flyer somewhat rings a bell, but I feel like that was one that got phased out too, Ben. What do you think? Yeah, so the Thomas Flyer Company, you're right, A lot, uh, several of these are not around anymore. Thomas Motor Company is also no longer around. They only made, they had a pretty short time span. They made bikes and motorcycles and autos just from 1900 to 1919. And this happens a lot with industries. You know, when something first emerges into the public sphere, you'll see a ton of competitors. And then later they kind of like, narrow down, right? I always think about that when I read old soda ads Mm -hmm. and there's so many unfamiliar things. They were trying everything totally in in the old days of soda. I did look up De Dion Bouton. Gosh, I wish Super Producer Casey Pegram was here to Mm -hmm. help with our French, but it is a defunct company and it's really interesting. The most popular vehicle they ever made was something called the De Dion Bouton Tricycle. And it was essentially, it looks in profile like a motorcycle, like like a small motorbike, but then you realize it's got two wheels on the back. And between 1897 and 1901, they apparently sold over 15,000 of these. So they were pretty well-known yes, at the time. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about these teams. And we'll, we can group them by country. So first, the Americans. There are Thomas guys, right? That's right. The Thomas car was built by the Thomas Motor Company. And it was a Model 35, the 1907 model. It has a four-cylinder, 60-horsepower engine. And it can reach a whopping peak speed of 60 miles per hour which is, you know, no one should ever have to drive faster than 60 miles per hour. Slow down, you speed demons, <laughs> you crazy Atlanta drivers, uh, passing on the right. Ugh, anyway, sorry, I'm, I was triggered. Um, it was, like again, like this bespoke, fully loaded for the time, uh, which included built-in spaces to hold two shovels, two picks, two lanterns, and eight searchlights. Uh, and also some extra gas cans, um, which would give it a capacity of 125 gallons. Uh, that would be important in a long-haul race like this. Mm-hmm. Oh, and there's more, right, Ben? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 500 feet of rope, as well as a rifle and revolvers. It also had this top you could attach to it, kind of like what you would see on covered wagons. It could wrap the, over the entire car and turn it into turn it into a tent, basically. You could camp in it. The driver of this vehicle 
was going to be 24-year-old Montague Roberts. He had some qualifications. He had just won the 24-hour endurance derby at Brighton Beach in the same car just a year ago. And along with him came George Schuster, who is a mechanic from Thomas, and then another mechanic named George Miller and a reporter from The Times. Each of the cars had a similar sort of team with them, like a driver, mechanics, journalist. Next, we have the French team consisting of G. Boursier de Saint-Chaffrain. I think that's right. Uh, he was driving the French uh, Dédion. And he was actually someone who comes from a background in motorboat racing. He once participated in a race from Marseille to Algiers that uh, involved every single boat in the race sinking into the Mediterranean. His captain in that race was a guy by the name of Hans Hendrik Hansen, wow, who is referred to in a fabulous article from Weird Historian as a swashbuckling Norwegian. Um, and he, you know, seemed to have a pretty big opinion of himself and told some stories that could have perhaps involved a little bit of a creative license, let's say. Claimed to have sailed a Viking ship by himself to the North Pole. Um, I don't think we have anything to confirm this, but he, he mm. told a good tale. And he said that he and his companions will be able to reach Paris, quote, or our bodies will be found inside the car. Dope. High yeah. stakes. Yeah, very much so. Charles Godard was driving the Moto Block, the other uh, vehicle on the French team. And he was actually a competitor in that other crazy race you mentioned, Ben, the Peking to Paris race. And he participated in that race without ever having driven a car before. <laughs> Uh, it's a brave new world, truly a new frontier. And he apparently set an endurance record by driving all by himself for 24 hours nonstop. That, it's very, un very unsafe. Yeah, don't do it. That's, that's dangerous. Uh, wait until there are more autonomous cars on the market. So let's look at the Italians. If this is a film, when we're panning over to the Italians, we will see Emilio Sirtori, who's the driver for the Zust. And along with him, we'll see... This is weird. We'll see a 21-year-old lad, a journalist and poet named Antonio Scarfoglio. Antonio is interesting because he almost didn't get in the race. He was in a fight with his dad about it. His dad was a well-to-do newspaper editor in Naples, and he eventually said, look, Pop, I'm going to steal a boat, and I'm going to go across the Atlantic on my own if, if you don't agree to let me go in this race. And so his dad ponied up and, as we imagine, probably paid his passage to get mm -hmm. to New York. And then we've got, to finish out the teams, we've got the Germans. They were driving the Protoss, and they were German. One of them was a German aristocrat, Hans Köppen, and he was in it. This is almost like anime, you know, their weird motivations. So totally. Köppen doesn't really care about the trophy. He thinks that if he does well in this race, he can get promoted from lieutenant to captain, which is weird. We don't know how promotions in the German army work, but your performance in an auto race is not a huge factor in your promotion in the U.S. Army. I One think. would not think uh, that would be the case in the German army either, but, you know, he seemed to think it might. Uh, who knows? But you're right, Ben. I love this ragtag gang of uh, weird miscreants with backstories and crazy claims about piloting Viking ships and such. Uh, this is great. I got to say, the, the German car, the Protos, sounds more Italian, and the Italian car, the Zust, sounds more German. I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. Isn't that funny? 
I don't know what the deal is with that. But okay, so we know, we set out from the start that this is a perilous journey. And that ends up not being the half of it. A quarter of a million people lined up on Broadway in New York's Times Square, all the way up to Harlem, which if you know, if you have a passing knowledge of New York geography, which I barely do, uh, you know that's quite a ways. You know, that's quite a, a line of people. The race was supposed to start at 11 a.m. The mayor at the time, George B. McClellan Jr., who is the son of a Civil War general, a Union general, to be clear, was supposed to shoot off the starting pistol, but he was late, which apparently was uh, his way. Yeah, that was his vibe. He was one of those people who moves to their own clock, but they've got stuff to do. This is a big deal. So about 15 minutes later, a railroad financier with a weird name, Colgate Hoyt, says, you know, enough of this. And he snatches the gun, the golden gun, by the way, from the table, shoots it into the air, and boom, they're off. The cars are moving forward. Our Italian poet, Scarfoglio, says, between the thick hedges of extended hands amidst a roar as of a falling torrent. And he's loving it. He blows a kiss to the crowd because he has no idea how weird this stuff is about to get. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber Teen. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. This is important stuff. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you can follow their entire ride on that live tracking map. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week, I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. I watch every step of the way uh, from the moment the car's called to when they get in and then I can track their progress to and from their destination. It makes them feel safe and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. Mm -hmm. And here's how it works. When your team requests a trip, they are matched with highly rated experienced drivers and you receive those real-time notifications as well as enhanced safety features. That's right. Pin verification, in fact, to ensure that your team enters the right vehicle. Live trip tracking for parents. Plus, you, the parent, can contact the driver directly from the app. And don't delay. Today, you can get 40% off that's up to $15 off three Uber Teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details. Sometimes to get what you want, you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. We're nothing if not trailblazers here at Ridiculous History. And you know who also is a huge uh, iconoclastic challenger of the status quo, Ben? Who is that, Noel? Well, I think you know. It's Harry's. Yes, it's Harry's. They saw customers getting ripped off by all kinds of like slipshod, questionable products in the shaving industry. And they said, hey, you got to be the change. I was excited to try out the Winston set. It's an all-in-one package. You get some shaving cream. You get that great razor we're talking about. They also have deodorant. Yeah, I was about to say. Very helpful. I do really enjoy uh, their line of self-care products. Um, richly lathering, skin-softening body washes and scents like redwood, wild lens, and stone. You want to know what a stone smells like? I've often wondered. Only you know you can. <laughs> so don't settle for the status quo, folks. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash history. Once again, that's harrys.com slash history for a $3 trial set. 
This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's this. There's always a catch. So when we heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, we thought, what's the catch? So we dug in, and after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't a catch. Can you believe that? Mint Mobile's got a secret sauce, babies, and it is that they sell wireless service online, and by doing so, cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet, sweet, delicious savings directly onto you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Like the beginning of their journey, I would say is much less hazardous than the later legs of the journey. Their route is supposed to take them across the U.S. They are going to go in areas with very few paved roads, and then they're going to head north through Canada. They're going to take a left at Alaska, and then they have to cross the Bering Strait. And the organizers of the race were making what I think is a really risky bet, dude. They said, okay, because we're starting the race in the middle of winter, hopefully the strait will be frozen. Ah, like solid enough to drive a bunch of cars across. <laughs> right. Yikes. Uh, I got to say, that the idea of taking a left at Alaska, I find hilarious. It reminds me of that Bugs Bunny thing where he's always like, ah, that made that left turn at Albuquerque, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking the, the same thing. thing. Yeah. It's, it, maybe that's where it comes from. So, As reported by the Smithsonian Mag in a fantastic article on the race, assuming they successfully cross the Bering Strait, they're going to go through Siberia. No one at all ever at this point in history has taken a car through Siberia. And then, presuming everyone survives, they go to the final stretch. They'll hit Moscow, St. Petersburg, then Berlin, and then Paris. So overall, this is 22 thousand miles and this is again at a time where anyone in the world the average person if you ask them what was more reliable a car or a horse they would 100 percent be on team horse totally i mean i think everybody pretty much knows this but the you know cars in the early days were referred to as horseless carriages because they were kind of seen as a novelty almost you know yep exactly and winter was a punishing time to have this sort of race uh, you know, these vehicles, we have one that had the uh, removable attachable top, but the vehicles for the most part had open tops. They didn't have windshields. They didn't have heaters. There was going to be a level of attrition here. August Pons, who was driving the French Césaire Nadine, which didn't talk about too much. Here's why we didn't talk about it too much. He got about 96 miles into this 22,000 mile race. And he had mechanical problems, a broken differential. So that put him out of the running. And then the leaders of the race become the De Dion, the Zeus, and the Thomas Flyer. Yay, go US. And the other two were in the rear, the Protos and the Motoblock. That's right. So they get to Hudson, New York, and have to literally plow through 
feet deep snow in a line. And the thing is, some of these cars were all, they all had varying levels of like, uh, let's just call it accessories, right? Like we know that the uh, Thomas Flyer, I believe, was equipped with tons of rope and, you know, lanterns and, and, and extra gas, but it didn't have a heater or a windshield. (laughs) And to check how deep the snow was, they had to use the most rudimentary tool of them all still holds up today. The stick, the noble stick, you use it to check the depth of the snow to see how far they could go without getting stuck. Yeah. And then things continue to get worse. So it would be more appropriate perhaps to describe the road out of Auburn as a trail. In fact, the New York Times described it as the worst road in the United States, and they were not fooling around when they said that. Three cars ended up getting stuck at a place with the unfortunate name of Dismal <laughs> yes, Hollow I know. in the Montezuma Swamp. Oh. Uh, eventually, you know, the guys who were stuck, they said, and this is going to happen a couple of times in the race, the guys who were stuck said, all right, we're just going to camp for the night. We'll figure this out in the morning. But luckily, the Italians had hired this American guide, and he was able to get help from the locals. He came through with six horses to pull the cars out. Right. And and like you said, Ben, this isn't the only time this happens. And to me, this is an absolute PR nightmare because it's showing that cars are inferior to horses, in my opinion. (laughs) Yeah, and that horses are winning the race, kind of, at this Exactly. Point. But at the end of the day, though, the problems were not with the cars themselves, but with the terrain, and they weren't suited for the, the, the cars. Again, part of the point of this race was to encourage investment in uh, better infrastructure and roadways. Yeah, totally. You know, it might have been, would it have been smarter to have a less ambitious race during a less punishing time of the year? Maybe, but that's not the look they were going for. So the teams settle into a routine because this is a very long race. They get up at five, they drive all day, they call it a night at 8 p.m., at least the drivers do, but the mechanics stay up until at least midnight working to keep these things running. They drain the radiators every night to keep them from freezing. They work to repair cracks in the chassis, and then they would always hit up hardware stores because they have to buy gas. And there aren't a ton of gas stations around. So they get gas like by the bucket from hardware stores. And then they form like this um, Cold War-esque agreement where they say, okay, we're going to alternate who gets to be in the lead every five hours because we're still very far away from Paris. So we're just going to have a gentleman's agreement. (laughs) Yeah, these, these, uh, these competitors were nothing if not gentlemen. Right, right. And one guy is literally an aristocrat. So this is an important issue because they're being judged on hours, total hours spent. And they had convinced themselves that something as small as one or two hours could make a difference in this race that was going to go for six months. So they were also concerned. There were trust issues there. They were concerned that, you know, one unscrupulous team might pretend to go to sleep when everybody else did. And it might take off in the middle of the night to get a lead. So one of the Europeans is starting to get a little big for their britches. And they, they say to the other, other racers, they say, if you want to go into a city ahead, you ask me. That's what he says specifically to uh, the American team. And Roberts replies, all right, from now on, you will know this is a race. 
which is like, okay. In other words, all bets are off. Screw you, buddy. <laughs> exactly. And they, they're uh, surprise, folks. Their relationship does not get better as the race nope. continues. Nope. They, uh, they head into the Midwest. At this point, the Italians have gone so far as to accuse the Americans of cheating by using railroad tracks and somehow the aid of a trolley car. How does that even work? Yeah, the idea would be, you know, if you think about it, the idea here is is fairly plausible. Railroad tracks are the best infrastructure at the time for transport. Mm. So they're they're thinking these Americans are going to put their car on a trolley car, on a train car, and then they're going to zip along the train tracks. They'll be much faster because, you know, the rails are better than the roads at this point. And then some of the foreign competitors look down their nose at the rural American locals. Scarfoglio, our poet, says, I do not like the Americans as a whole, just as I do not like the cheesemonger whom a prize in a lottery or a sudden rise in the price of potatoes has made wealthy. There's still too much of the herdsman about them. Snoot E. So then into Indiana, the Motoblock and the Protos teams were getting super cranky because they had to pay a bunch of money to get help, you know, from these guides or whatever who would use horses to help, you know, haul them through this tough terrain. They were angry specifically, though, at the American team who were getting tons of free help from Indiana people, Indianites, Hoosiers, I think is what you call it. Never understood that. Uh, and what's that movie about anyway? Basketball, I guess. Um, I do like Gene Hackman though. But they, uh, the the European team, the Moto Block and the Protos teams, sent a urgent plea for assistance to the head of the Chicago Automobile Club, which the Chicago Tribune graciously printed under the headline "Foreigners' Pathetic Appeal." <laughs> There's a lot. That's the thing. There is a lot of nationalism oh, going yeah. on here. And I, I think this plays, you know, this plays into the Tarantino-esque aspect of this, because I can I can totally see that guy having a lot of fun with uh, some stereotypes of yesteryear. So the note says, <laughs> it's so weird, it's such a snarky thing to do, but the note says, uh, we are discouraged. The peasants demand $3 per mile for helping us. They charge $5 each to permit us to sleep on the ground. Peasants along the way have filled up road dug by leading cars so as to help the Thomas car. Would it be possible to influence public opinion to aid us? And the Tribune clearly not just said no, but they, they went uh, an extra mile. So by March 8th, the Thomas Flyer is in the lead in Julesburg, Colorado, and they've picked up a new passenger. Hans Hendrik Hansen, you had just mentioned earlier, Noel, that swashbuckling Norwegian, he had quit the St. Chaffee team after their car, the Dedeon, got stuck in a snowdrift. And, you know, he's supposed to be like the Viking dude, the expert on all things Arctic. He is not able to extricate the vehicle. And so he starts arguing with the team leader. And they agree to settle the matter in the most mature way possible with a duel. And so they go off to find their guns. And while they're off looking for their guns, uh, St. Chaffrey says, you know what? I'm just going to fire you instead. And Hansen says, you know what? I could go on foot over the Siberian route and still beat your car. So I'm with the Americans now. 
<laughs> Love it. So much snark, so much petty squabbling. Uh, but again, the stakes are pretty high. You know, it's uh, the, 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 the pack has really thinned out and everyone's kind of like, you know, in it to win it. So now we need to account for the Zust, which is the Italian team with the German sounding car name. Got it. They are in Omaha at this point, and the Dedion is in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and the Moto Block uh, is in Maple Park, Illinois, while the Protos is uh, bringing up the rear in Geneva, Illinois. Yeah. So the Thomas Flyer is approaching frenzied crowds in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And it's, you know, just picture the scene USA, USA, something like that is going down. <laughs> Roberts knows that his time in the race is nearing the end. He wanted to sail to Paris in May and race in the Grand Prix, which was a you know, more established race. So E. Lynn Mathewson, who is the son of like the general agent for Thomas Cars in the Midwest region, they pick him to drive the Thomas Flyer from Wyoming to Utah. And from there, a professional driver named Harold Brinker is going to take the wheel. Brinker is famous because he survived a crash the year earlier that had killed another driver. So George Schuster is still along for the ride. He's going to drive through Alaska and Siberia, and then Roberts is supposed to return when the car nears Europe, which is later going to be a sticking point for uh, both of those guys. By the time the Americans leave Wyoming, things are looking pretty good. They are ahead by two entire states. The Italians are starting across Nebraska. The French are in Iowa awaiting parts for their car. And the German team, Lieutenant Copen in the Protos and Charles Goddard in the Motoblock, those two groups are just now entering Iowa. And the Motoblock is having mechanical difficulties. And Goddard won't talk about it. Instead, he breaks the rules. He ships his car to San Francisco by railroad. That's what he tries to do. But a journalist, a photographer, catches him in the act. So he gives up and uh, he gets a message from the owners of the car. It says simply, quit race, sell car, come home. So the moto block is finished. Now we've gone from six to four cars. Okay, then stuffing things, boom, zip, pow, <laughs> we're in Russia. There we go. Yes. Uh, there are a lot of blow-by-blows of the race we can give you, but we're, we wanted to stick to some of the real pivotal moments. On Wednesday, April 8th, Thomas Flyer reaches Alaska. The entire population of a town called Valdez is out to see the, this arrival because very few of them have ever seen a car in real life. Schuster immediately starts trying to figure out how they're going to cross Alaska in a car. So he takes a sleigh, a literal sleigh out and explores the area. He comes back and he says, okay, here's what we have to do. We have to take our car apart and we have to put it piece by piece on dog sleds as the only way we're getting across Alaska. So we're not actually driving across Alaska. No, no, they're literally now in like these improvised uh, car sled situations. Uh, that had to have been a thing to behold. There's so much ingenuity in this uh, race, I got to say. Mm. You know, I appreciate that because it really is a situation that no car, modern cars even, would be able to navigate, let alone these like super early, much less resilient cars, I would I would say. Yeah, this is a really good point, Noel. So... The committee for the race over in Paris, they hear about this and they go, all right, maybe we were being a little cartoonish. 
Mm-hmm. Well, we say you could drive across the Bering Strait. You guys do this, turn around, go back to Seattle, and we're going to have you sail to Vladivostok and drive to Paris from there. This is still, you know, it's still a race. So the Americans are sailing first. And while they're at sea, their competitors arrive in Seattle, and then they also set sail for Russia. But the Americans lose time because there's still, you know, an international travel system, and they have to figure out how to get their visas in order. Yeah, you'd think they would have thought about that in advance, right? <laughs> you would, yeah. That's or, or, that's or, that, or that the, like, you know, uh, organizers of the race would have helped secure all of that stuff for them. You know what I mean? It just seems like, oops, forgot about international travel, how I need, like, you know, certain crucial documents and all that. But um, the Italian and French teams at this point were making their way across Japan, and that is when the race committee, in their infinite wisdom, made another decision uh, that would affect uh, the fate of these four teams. And this was to recognize the time that the flyer car lost when it was making that detour through Alaska the American team was given an allowance of 15 days, which I guess is like a a credit, right? Back on their score of 15 days. Yeah, because they were kind of getting punished for being the honors student. Mm -hmm. Since they they were the first to arrive in Alaska, they were the first to prove it was a dumb idea. And so they're crossing And everyone else benefited from it. Right, which everyone else benefited. They just had to go to Seattle at this point. So- It's weird, though, adding this 15 days is kind of controversial because it means that the Zeust and the De Dion can beat the flyer into Paris. They can get there two weeks earlier, and because of that 15-day allowance, they would still lose. And the protos on the other side of the spectrum are going to be penalized 15 days for resorting to uh, using the train from Ogden to Seattle. They didn't disqualify the Germans entirely because they said it looks like he was just genuinely, honestly confused about the rules, like he wasn't trying to cheat. <laughs> I think the uh, the racing committee seemed genuinely and honestly confused. <laughs> I think there was a lot of genuine and honest confusion to be had all around. And this eventually turns into genuine and honest blackmail that ultimately costs the French team the race. Uh, Once the Americans caught up to the others in Vladivostok, that's where the last French driver, that uh, aristocrat, I believe we were talking about, right? Saint-Chaffre? Or was that, uh, they all sound like aristocrats to me. He apparently had, this sounds like a pretty aristocratic thing to do, bought up all the gas, (laughs) all of it in the area, and was like offering it to teams in exchange for taking him on. That's so crazy. Yeah, he and he's he's honest about this. He says, there is no petrol. There are no means of getting any. What there was is in my possession. And I <laughs> offer it to the car, which will agree to take me on board. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. Devious, yeah. So the Italians uh, were like, man, you suck. Uh, you are <laughs> a psychopath. Uh, leave us alone. And they stormed out. saint Chaffre, he tried his best to wield his, you know, supervillain-like cunning against the Americans. He said that he could get a seat on the German car easily, but the flyer was sort of in a position to beat the protos into paris and he would prefer to be on the first car to arrive this guy holy cow Uh, and he said to the americans it would not look well for a frenchman to ride on a german machine okay 
Okay. So he was like, you know, these are the reasons that I don't want to go with the Germans. I want to go with you. You're the winners. Please take the bait of my gas blackmail. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> my gas blackmail. Oh, how to win friends and influence people. So Schuster privately, our mechanic, told his U.S. team, look, I'd rather stay in Vladivostok for the rest of my life than accept this weird French dude's bribe. So Saint-Chalfre transfers the rights to his gas to the Italian team, but they still don't let him join their squad. So his sponsor, Saint-Chalfre's sponsor, pulls him from the race. He is out. And that means that the racers who are still around are pushing across the thawing tundra of Siberia and Manchuria and into the wild expanse of Russia. The Germans are leading, the Americans are in second, and the Italians are lagging thousands of miles in the rear. Noel, we have a plot twist of our own for the rest of this story, don't we? Boy, do we ever. Hold on to your hats, folks. We're about to enter the stunning world of 3D audio. It's so crazy. We're doing it. We're doing it. Headphones recommended. Uh, Please. Here's the rest of the race. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber Teen. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. This is important stuff. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you can follow their entire ride on that live tracking map. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week, I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. I watch every step of the way uh, from the moment the car is called to when they get in and then I can track their progress to and from their destination. It makes them feel safe and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. Mm -hmm. And here's how it works. When your team requests a trip, they are matched with highly rated experienced drivers and you receive those real-time notifications as well as enhanced safety features. That's right. Pin verification, in fact, to ensure that your teen enters the right vehicle. Live trip tracking for parents. Plus, you, the parent, can contact the driver directly from the app. And don't delay. Today, you can get 40% off That's up to $15 off three Uber teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details. Hey, Noel, have you ever wanted to wake up to something better? Oh, boy, have I ever been. (laughs) Well, uh, this is where Avalon Waterways comes in. How does waking up to a medieval castle an ancient cathedral, a rolling vineyard, or a charming cobblestone village sound to you. Well, here on Ridiculous History, that's right up our street, Ben, our charming cobblestone street. So I can say it sounds pretty good to me. You're absolutely right, Noel. Avalon Waterways has redefined cruising in so many different ways. They've got the uh, widest opening windows. They've got beds that face the passing scenery. So wherever you go, you have a front row seat to the views of the world. And not only do you wake up in the best staterooms in the entirety of the business, but you're waking up in a new port every day, right in the heart of these amazing historic cities. Ah, Ben, sign me up. Open your eyes to a better view and a different kind of cruising. One with smaller ships, bigger experiences, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. 
At UC San Diego, we understand that in order to turn the vast unknown into new cures or human connections or expansive culture, you have to be willing to venture further out. That's why we'll go as far as the International Space Station with cancer cells in hand and novel medicines in mind. That's why we map the seemingly randomness of forest fires and connect them with revolutionary AI to see where they'll appear next. And it's why we arrive on the San Diego shore from all over the world to bring different perspectives to our world's biggest challenges. When you push the boundaries of science, art, and culture, whole worlds open up. And at UC San Diego, that's where the real adventure starts. Learn more at ucsd.edu. Okay, Noel, we've talked about this. This this is the part that we were we were very excited about backstage. <laughs> Backstage? <laughs> Backstage? In the green room? Yes. In the gr- <laughs> By the craft services table? Right, with our Montaigne's. Uh-huh. This is crazy. We are back in the office for the first time. I know. In an mbop, we're back in the office. <laughs> yes. We just our way from our homes, our, our separate homes, into the office. In the course of a single episode, through the magic of podcasting. Yes, and we are with uh, e- your daughter Eden is yep. here. Our ride or die, Matt Frederick, is Holy here. Cow. Very patiently... Uh, Sitting with us outside, and we're not just for this part of the episode is so uh, is so weird. It's the it's the climax of our race. We decided we're not just going to record in regular sound. Mm. So at this point, uh, ridiculous historians, we ask that you put on your 3D headphones. We're just kidding. That's not a thing. But this part, <laughs> the stunning conclusion to the perilous New York to Paris auto race of 1908, is presented to you in. 3D. That's how 3D audio works. I'm behind you now. Wait, I'm in front of you. I'm behind you. Whoa! I like that one bit. So here's what happened. Here's why we wanted to really put you in the moment here. So the Siberia portion of the race is really testing the limits of these drivers. This is a long race. As we said, it's the early 1900s. Uh, driving in, like, just the U.S. can be tough in rural areas. It's true, Ben. And I- I'm sure, I'm sure our past selves, our future selves, who have done the part of the episode leading up to this, have mentioned at least once the great American North American road rally that you and I participated in way back when. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Good job, future or past us. Indeed. And, and from that experience, I think, and just from just driving around in Atlanta, mm-hmm. we all know that, that road conditions vary. Uh, mileage may vary. Um, and in this particular stretch of the race, the 50 miles from Vladivostok near Lorenzov uh, on the coast, um, there were absolute... Hardships is, is how it's described in the weird historian article that we've uh, been referencing. Um, there, it, it was very slow going. Uh, there were lots of descents, steep climbs, um, you know, amidst these cliffs. Uh, and then when the ground started to level off, you get into this like swampy terrain that can really, it's like the part in Mario Kart where mm-hmm. when you go like into the grass, you mm-hmm. know, it slows you down a little bit, yeah. only on a much larger scale and like with 
real stakes, not just you know uh, glory and and winning that that coveted those coveted stars. Uh, we are big Mario Kart fans, by the way, and uh, the, there have been friendships uh, made and lost in in Mario Kart uh, games aplenty. But I love that comparison, Noel, because this. This is true. The Sunday Times in um, April 19th, 1908, actually said, when they were talking about Vladivostok, they said, everything has been thought of there except for roads. So it's weird that that's where they would end up racing. At one point, it took the Thomas car four days to Mario Kart its way through just, what, 60 miles of Siberian mud. Yeah, uh, I'll tell you, roads, Ben, and Vladivostok. They don't need roads. Right. Uh, they have something resembling roads. But it's true. Um, not to mention there were some kind of more diplomatic challenges based around differences in culture, right? As the cars uh, zigzagged across Asia and into Europe on June the 28th, there was an article in the Times that talked about some events that began in on day 134 in Siberia. Uh, for example, there was an incident where a dozen men and women uh, blasted through this gate as the, What are you doing breaking through our gate? We are angry. You are invading our culture. That is an accurate translation. The crew thinks they're under attack, and so they're preparing for battle. They're like, this is it. This is it. Okay, get pumped. Get pumped. Who's the man? Who's the man? It's Who's me. The man? It's that's, me. That's what they were it's saying. Us. It's, it's us. all of us. It's all of us that were saying. There but, were women, too. Let's not forget. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and, but they quickly discovered this was just how... The Russians in this area were saying hello to them because, you know, where they're Russian, they don't need roads. Uh, that That is a very late pun, but it works on a couple it's levels. totally fine. It was a good follow-up. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's interesting, right? Because they, it's sort of like, uh, you know, when UK soccer fans really like you, they headbutt you in the face, you know? Is that what they told that's, you? That's, that's why they, they told you they did that? Well, I mean, I don't know. I thought I was popular. Uh, I did my best. But it's true. Mm-hmm. These things matter. And there, there is a language to these types of behaviors sure. that can absolutely be lost in translation. Yeah, like uh, just personal space. Like uh, the, if you're from the U.S. Uh, and you travel to a place that has a different idea of personal space, it gets real weird. Mm-hmm. Like people you don't know are... Uh, you know, it's like that thing where if you've ever been in a public restroom and there are like four stand-up urinals mm-hmm. and then someone comes right next to you even though it's empty. Hey, what's up, buddy? <laughs> like that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's weird how it smells like lilacs in here, isn't it? <laughs> are you going to use that urinal cake? <laughs> or is that just for like everyone? <laughs> so, oh, my goodness. We have gracious. a creepy bathroom at our office. But you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, there... They were um, there was a cultural discrepancy, and so they they were much relieved. But an attack did occur later, not by humans, but by mosquitoes. Because um, some people might not know this, but you know we think of Siberia as like this uh, frozen wasteland. Right. But at the wrong time of year, it's mosquito town. What's that sound like? <laughs> I'm glad you asked. And they just kept coming. Yeah, and they kept slapping. They just keep slapping themselves. Uh, 
eyes, their ears, mm-hmm. their noses, their mouths. We can't recreate the volume, the sheer volume of mosquitoes uh, that existed in 3D Audio. Although maybe our super producer, Max Williams, can do so in post to some degree. Big mosquito fan. Mm-hmm. Yep. He's got like this just collection of mosquito sounds. Yeah, they're like under glass. <laughs> oh, okay, the sounds for sure, but he also has some beautiful mosquito <laughs> specimens. That's hard drive with the sounds is under glass. Uh, full disclosure, we did a previous take of that mosquito attempt, and instead of clapping, I actually slapped myself in the face. It was a much more effective flesh-on-flesh sound, but now my face hurts. It was it was method. It was method, and I respect the method. So, okay, so right now, things are reaching ahead, and the Protos team had maintained a lead right now in the race, mm-hmm. but they were having their own problems. They were. I, 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 ben, I think Protos is absolutely probably accurate, but I like to think of them as, as being pronounced Protos. Protos, like, Protos. A, like a Grecian god. Just so, really. yeah, like a, like a Greek god, a, a Grecian god. Uh, this this issue took place near the town of Marinsk, uh, the German team. By the way, whenever we're dealing with these road race situations, and I can speak from experience, as can you, it's not like this at all, but I always picture it being a lot like Wacky Racers, that mm-hmm. Hanna-Barbera cartoon where there's hijinks and, you know, various cartoon characters vying for being the wackiest racer. Or like Twisted Metal. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, there are are some really weird uh, car car chases and car races, but this one, this one is interesting because these people have been through hell and back, and the the, the Germans, you know, we're talking about how infrastructure wasn't like it is today, but the German team there, they run into a stream that is somehow still called a stream. It's 200 feet wide and six feet deep. Their car can't go through mm. it. So there, that, that town you're mentioning, uh, Marinsk, uh, <laughs> I don't know how this worked, but the people in this village sound super cool. They do. But what do you do to a stream? Do you ford it? Is that is that what you do? That's what Oregon Trail told me. I lost some good people. I lost some good people. <laughs> how, many, how many times did you, do you think you got, uh, was it malaria? That's, that's dip, 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 no, no, dysentery. Dysentery, that's yeah. the one, the big D. Yeah, it wasn't malaria, although that would have been appropriate with the mosquitoes. I bet that might have been a problem in this race situation. Yeah. Uh, I, did, I don't know if anybody else did this, Noel, but I'm interested to hear from our ridiculous historians. Did you, was I the only person who, when playing Oregon Trail, would put the names of people that I didn't like in my crew <laughs> and then play it on, like, the hardest mode? Uh, that sounds like a kind of almost like a hex. You know, like, uh, yeah. I actually got an Oregon Trail card game. It's pretty cool. Oh, yeah, you mentioned yeah, it. It's not yeah. bad. And, and you have uh, little tombstones that you write the names of your characters on. Oh, okay. That took a turn. Yep. <laughs> that took a turn. So uh, you're, you're right. Um, this is something like fording a stream or a river. It's a real thing you have to do. Uh, you can't do it in a car because then the car would no longer function after going through six feet of water. Oh, dude. I mean, even modern cars. You ever, you ever like Ooh. driven in like horrible torrential rain and you go through like a massive, uh, you know, puddle? Ooh. It can jack up your car. Like it starts to sputter. Things happen. God forbid you don't have one of those plastic undercarriage pieces. No. That sort of protects, yeah. but that that you know, even like I said, modern cars, that stuff is not good for your car, and this would have been a way more extreme version of that. So they totally do this really cool thing. The entire village apparently had nothing going on, and so they agree to get together with the German crew, and they start throwing logs. <gasps> throwing, <laughs> talking them. Hey, hey, oh, you got to make sounds like that when you throw logs. 
Timber. Oh, timber, and then hey, and then okay, got it. Oh, wait. Ah, ah. Somebody went ah, ah. I don't know why. I'm certain they did. So uh, this... They, they put these logs under the car to keep it afloat. They have a team of horses tow it across, and it takes 10 hours. So, we you know, we mentioned that other group took several days to do 60 miles. These guys took 10 hours for a, a big stream. A big stream. I mean, I would say this definitely qualifies as a fording, wouldn't you? Yes, 100%. Yeah. Because that's what fording is. I mean, it's not just waiting. Otherwise, it'd be called waiting. It requires some active ingenuity mm-hmm. to get your stuff across that stream. And that's why Henry Ford named his company Ford Automobiles. Huge misconception. It has nothing always, to do with his last name. Always wondered that. It's, he it's, wanted to make amphibia boats. He amphibia <laughs> cars. Now, that's true. That is. He did make an amphibious car. Yeah. Ridiculous history where you're not where it's, it's unclear where the truth ends <laughs> and, the, and the ridiculousness begins or, or vice versa. So that's a feat of strength and ingenuity and, and, and uh, expert fording. Uh, so a little later, the Protos uh, came uh, upon a particularly muddy road that caused the car to sink into the swamps of sadness like a Treyu's horse. It yeah. was really, really a bummer. And it's just sinking in there. They're in tears. They're looking at their car. They say, why? Please don't leave me! Uh, to the car, because at this point that was all they had left. Artax! Yes! Cartax! Cartax! Yes. We got there. Uh, we, yeah, we did. Um, and they got some help, didn't they? In the form of uh, the thing that this, the car engine power is named after. That's right, yeah. The first, they used four horses to get across this stream, and they had to have six horses, uh, Artax, Cartax, this thing, out of that mud. A total of ten horses coming to the aid of uh, these, uh, these, these wacky racers. Horsepower. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm picking up with Sorry. you. Sorry. I kind of went in reverse order there. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, it's true. Yeah. Uh, and that how, how they were on hand, we'll definitely never know. We, we, there's not any way for us to find out. Yeah, sure, we will. It will be a mystery lost to time. What is a horse? No one really knows. Mm. That's a true fact. So now, look, these people are having a terrible day. And remember we said earlier, Robert's flew the coop so schuster has been the sole driver and he is at the end of his rope uh his the strain of driving that long you know driving for a long distance can wear on you road hypnosis is Mm -hmm. a real thing uh he also wasn't eating well he wasn't getting much rest he was doing something that i think we've all encountered actually matt uh, you and I have all encountered this at different yeah. times in our job. Where Subsisting we're like, on truck stop snacks, you know. Right. We're just going to sleep whenever possible. Uh, that's like you, you can do that for a time, but it's, it's, not, um, it's not sustainable. And so eventually Schuster lets someone else drive. And the car, and now the the team is doing much, much better mm-hmm. because this guy can finally take a break kick out in the back and have a snooze fest. Car tax. It's a sleep sleep fart. No. Sleep fart. I'm I'm looking over at Matt. Matt is like, so Matt is, um, uh, Matt is our expert on 3D audio, and so I keep looking over what we're doing. For approval? To, to see if it's approval, to see if he's just like, 
Yeah, I don't know. We don't know what else is going to happen when we get out of the booth. We're really classing up 3D audio here is what we're doing. Yeah, we're, we're giving you cinematic farts. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank, thank you, Matt. Thank you. Um, this is the first time for everything. Yeah, do we get, like, um, is there a red carpet? A red farted? Whatever. We're moving on. So now the, now the Thomas team is in, a, in much better positions. Uh, in Perm, Russia... Schuster gets a telegram from the Thomas factory in Buffalo, New York, and they say, do you want us to send Montague Roberts to help you when you get on the good roads of Europe? And Schuster was so mad that he could have, and I love this phrase, eaten nails. Have you ever heard that? Eating nails? I'm so mad I could eat some nails. Let's see. Let's think of an analog. I'm so mad I could spit. There's one. Yeah. (coughs) I'm so mad I could sleep fart. I don't think that's a thing. Sleep farting is a hundred percent. No, I mean, but 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 using it in such a way, sleep farting seems like a very pleasant thing. I wouldn't, I would only do that if I out of an abundance of comfort, right, and safety. Yeah. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I I love hearing those um, those idioms that people just seem to have made up Eat on the nails. spot. Wow, I'm sure that that has to be a common one. Maybe I guess so. It seems like I, but it's, it's first on me. And you certainly would have to be pretty mad, uh, like a, like 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 crazy mad, like sleep deprived. <laughs> Insano mad, you yes. know? And so he immediately replies. This is like when you are texting someone in a disagreement and they, they start, you know, like just flame texting mm-hmm. you and, and you're thinking, okay, wow, they have they have way more time to dedicate Gee. to this. I've had a few girlfriends that were very good at that. Uh, <laughs> it's really hard when someone's just blasting you. It's really hard not to try to retort. You know what I mean? Well, also, it's hard just to keep the pace of the conversation. Because, mm-hmm. you know, the fight is never about the fight. No, it's never about <laughs> the fight. Uh, it's, a, it's a sport is what it is. So so what does Schuster say when he when he shoots back? Uh, he he just says July nine arrived today. Expect to reach Paris on July twenty fourth. Schuster, <laughs> Schuster out. Yeah, right. Yeah, um, and the implication here was that he was good enough to drive the uh, flyer through these uh, very arduous, boggy terrains of Siberia, but not through the capitals of Europe. Yeah, see, that's the thing. Like, if you think about it from his perspective, he has been through. Terrible, terrible times. He's really struggled, and he's he's a great driver. And he's saying, "Okay, wow, I'm good enough to do the actual work, mm-hmm. but you want someone else to get the credit." Severely, eat some nails. I get it <laughs> exactly, exactly. But here we are now mm-hmm. again, coming mm-hmm. to you in three D. That's a car. That's oh, I thought it was maybe one of those like. Oh, that's cool. Let's do that. Breaking news bulletin: The Germans cross the finish line first, but the American team wins the race. USA, 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 USA. Why do people do? As a sound effect for a... It sounds like a, a cacophonous crowd. Oh, maybe I'm doing it wrong. I'm doing it more like a wheeze. Like, she's probably... <sighs> that's way better. I was doing... <sighs> <laughs> there was one guy. There was one guy wheezing. Is that guy joy. okay? Is that, okay. Know, is that guy okay? Yeah, but that's... Yeah, that's all That's all she wrote. The Germans did cross the finish line first, but due to a technicality, the Americans reigned supreme, didn't Th- they? Yes, that's right, Noel. So, is July 26. Five and a half months after the beginning of the race, 21,933 miles from the start, way over in Times Square, 
Lieutenant Coben arrives in Paris, slowly gliding down the streets, and a delegation of editors from Le Matin, uh, oh, I miss Casey. <laughs> He wouldn't know how to pronounce the French. They greet him with, this is funny, they greet him and serve him a cold buffet as a reception, and they have apparently tepid enthusiasm because uh, this was France, and the, the whole time this race is happening, people can accumulate penalties and allowances. So this means the American team still has a month to finish and to win. And that's why uh, four days later, when Schuster and the Americans cruise into Paris, they get this ecstatic crowd. And what are, what are they shouting? No. Oh! <laughs> oh! It's that same guy. It's, <laughs> on his deathbed, he goes, Vive la, oh! <laughs> he goes, Vive la car American! <laughs> and I die. Exum, stage left. Yes. Oh, there's a stage left? Which one's stage left? I guess this would be stage left. Because you're facing the... Okay. okay. By the way, everybody, this thing, it looks like a... It's like a weird head with only ears. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, it reminds me of something you see in a sci-fi f- uh, film because it's got these weird frames around it. Mm-hmm. Like, there's like... Like, the ears are like a living piece of tissue that's somehow been cyberized. You know, it's connected with, like, some yeah. kind of metal piece. You know what I'm talking Bioware, about? yeah. Exactly. It reminds me of those experiments where you could grow ear cartilage on a mouse. That's exactly right. And and uh, I got to say, these are quite fetching ears. It's also, if you'll notice, uh, these have the uh, attached earlobes, which is a recessive genetic trait. <gasps> Wow, I never thought about that. I, I, right. It totally doesn't matter, <laughs> but uh, to these to these folks in Paris. But so, like we said, Schuster, they find, he and the crew finally make it. Viva la cara, American! Uh, the Italians are running late, uh, but they got really close to not winning. They almost didn't make it to the finish line because get this. They got pulled over. Probably, probably a bit of a whoop whoop. whoop, whoop. What, 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 what do they? What do they sound like back then? They're more like. Dot. What kind of effect? And maybe, maybe they didn't have sirens either. Maybe it's just like, hey, hey. I, I think. Hey. I, I, for some reason, I, I'm picturing our listeners at home right now just screaming at their iPhones. Mm. Stop with the sound effects. We get it, you guys. We get it. No, we're I'm kidding. We're we're, I'm having fun. a blast. Yeah, but yeah, they are pulled over mid race. Not a good look. Uh, the officer approaches, and uh, what, what was it for speeding? What, what even was it? They had no working headlight, um, and this is in Paris. Like they are so close to the finish line. Uh, they said you got no working headlights. So according to the local law, mm-hmm. you cannot drive in the city at night. And of course, since it's Paris, uh, passing cyclists saw the scene and offered to load his bicycle into the car to use as a headlight because the bike had a functioning headlight. And the officer, in a burst of uh, magnanimity, magnanimity, just uh, he was being nice, essentially. Let him go. Yeah. And so, 6 p.m., the Thomas car has completed the race. Uh, Even though the protos arrived four days earlier, they had that 15-day penalty, and that gave the Americans the victory. And Schuster, who has apparently done eating nails, insists that Monty Roberts be there for the Flyers' return to Times Square, where it all began uh, on August 17, 1908. 
That's exactly right. And, of course, there was, you know, a ticker tape parade, one would assume, raucous parties. Uh, and after all of that uh, subsided, he just went back to his job at the factory um, where he was guaranteed long-term employment as long as the company remained afloat. That is just the most lackluster, anticlimactic <laughs> prize. Yeah, I guess it is. It's kind of. It's almost like you, you think about the end of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory with uh, Charlie inheriting the factory as being, you know, kind of some, somehow amazing. But it's also like, bro, you got to run a factory now. Yeah, you, you're not equipped for this. He's a kid. He's a little kid. <laughs> what does he know about manufacturing? Well, you know, it's uh, there are people who'd say that being a um, a CEO for certain companies doesn't really mean you do a lot. That's fair. That's fair. So, well, I didn't say he was a CEO. I said he was, I'm giving it to you. Yeah, so maybe he's just the ownership class now. He doesn't really do anything. I suppose the Oompa Loompas probably have all that locked down. Yeah, I mean, they've got a strong union, honestly. I, the, like, also with the Oompa Loompas, how much time do they spend making candy versus working on choreography? Yeah, or versus teaching lessons to horrible children. Yeah, but the thing is, they're not really teaching the lessons because the, the children are... It, it feels like the children have lifelong injuries Definitely. at this point. They're not going to recover at from At the very least, irreparable PTSD. I thought they did Gustav dirty. I'm going to say it. He did not deserve what happened to him. He's the one who got sucked up in the tubes, yeah, right? Yeah, just because he likes chocolate. He's at a candy oh, factory. Augustus, I think. He oh, was. Augustus. Yes, That's yes, right. Sir. Augustus. Uh, yeah. but, it's also kind of body shaming in a lot of ways, you know, and I mean, sure. not to be like too PC about it. But uh, one thing I will say, um, yeah. I watched a com- Sorry, we're going to go from the stage, but it's worth it. I recently watched a comparison video of the 1970s Willy Wonka and the awful, borderline unwatchable uh, like Tim it? Burton one. You like it? Oh, it's so bad. I just, yeah, it's, it's uh, bad. Well, you know, it's, it's, they're two very different movies. They are. But the, the one thing that the comparison YouTube uh, YouTubers um, mentioned is that the chocolate in the 70s one, mm-hmm. it looks like liquid diarrhea. It really does. Mm-hmm. That's why I think, uh, you know, Augustus was done dirty because he was, he was being adventurous and uh, he wasn't hurting any. I guess he was contaminating the Chocolate River. Anyway, before we get to the very end, the wrap-up of this, I, I've got to tell you, folks, if you are a fan of Willy Wonka, there is an amazing theory that Snowpiercer is a sequel to Willy Wonka, to the 1970s one. I know it sounds crazy. Check out the YouTube video after you listen to this. It is uh, a little bit long, but it is compelling. Have you seen this? Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you heard about no, this? No, I haven't, but I love I love the concept, and I'm already thinking of scenarios how this could be the case. But like most good things, the Thomas Company did come to an end, uh, an outright collapse, and all of its remaining models and parts, et cetera, were auctioned off. Lot number 1829 uh, was listed as the famous New York to Paris racer. And that is why even today, should you travel to Reno, Nevada, you can check out the Thomas Flyer at the National Automobile Museum. Uh, we've got some uh, listeners in Reno, mm-hmm. uh, one of whom has offered to, uh, graciously offered to teach me golf. Oh. I don't know how it works. So. I don't know if you can be taught golf. I think you either got it or you ain't. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's like a, it's a golf is a vibe more than a sport. I completely agree. Uh, it's right. also a flex. Uh, ben, can you remind listeners about where to check out that car stuff episode that uh, was adjacent to this topic? 
Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You can just, uh, really, it's as simple as searching car stuff for the New York to Paris auto race. And it should it should pop right up. Uh, it's a, oh, this is terrible. Mm, we've gone too far to turn back now. It's a wild ride. So this is the end of our uh, 3D segment. We hope you enjoyed a little bit of audio theater of mm -hmm. the mind. Yeah. We also hope you uh, appreciate the roads you have now. Indeed. Of the mind, of the brain, mm -hmm. uh, of all those things. Uh, a huge thanks to Max Williams for putting up with uh, having to do post-production on this. And even huger, no, equally huge thanks to... Uh, Matt Frederick mm -hmm. for teaching us the ways and, and, and for touching these weird, creepy, e fleshy ear things and not making us do it. So huge, huge thanks as well to our producer crew, uh, Casey Pegram, Andrew Howard, Alex Williams, who composed that uh, slapping track. Mm -hmm. uh, not in 3D audio, but Alex is also a bit of a 3D audio aficionado. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. If I do say so myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's no dodo when it comes to the 3DO, uh, 3D audio. Well, the mic here is called the 3DIO. That's where it was, yeah, made by Dio. Yes, <laughs> it was rocked for a long, long time. Um, but now it's time for him to pass the torch, and for us to pass the torch to you, Ridiculous Historians, where you can check us out on the internet, where we are Ridiculous History on every place you could possibly imagine. Uh, our favorite place, of course, on the internet is Ridiculous Historians' Facebook group, where you can get in on the conversation with us. Join us there. We pop in, uh, we pop out. Definitely some great folks in that group. Um, you can also find us individually as human people on the internet uh, in our own rights. I am on Instagram exclusively at How Now Noel Brown. And you can find me on Twitter at Ben Bolin HSW or on Instagram at Ben Bolin B O W L I N. This is weird. I got close to the other side. It's like we're in kissing distance. I know that I was there too. And it was really kind of a little weird. But uh, you should definitely check out Ben's social profiles because he, he does some really funny, cool stuff. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, Smaller Ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon waterways can go where the big ships can only dream through winding passageways of rolling vineyards and castled hills into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at AvalonWaterways.com. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you, as the parent, can follow their ride on a live tracking map. Yeah, when your teen requests a trip, they're matched with highly rated, experienced drivers and you receive real-time notifications. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events 
events the other week. I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. It makes them feel safe and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. And today you can get 40% off. That's up to $15 off three Uber team rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your team to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details. This episode is brought to you by Discover. You know, in today's world, it seems the best treatment is reserved only for a few. Well, Discover wants to change that by making everyone feel special. That's why with your Discover card, you have access to 24-7 live customer service, as well as $0 fraud liability, which means you're never held responsible for unauthorized purchases. Finally, no matter who you are or where you are in life, you'll feel special with Discover. Learn more at discover.com slash credit card. Limitations apply.